Good evening, everybody. <clears throat> it's a wonderful privilege for me again to bring the message to you tonight in the absence of pastor. And I really and sincerely trust that the Lord will bless the thoughts that I'm going to do, share with you tonight. And may he be glorified and may he be uplifted in the process. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. Lord, help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. Thanks for the wonderful example we have this evening. Thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the confidence in our hearts that you are with us. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen and amen. <clears throat> I would have loved to stand there on the same level as you tonight because we are not so many. It feels like a huge distance, this liturgical space here, but... Uh, I'll get used to it. Thank you. Uh, read with me a few verses from the Word of God in my favorite book in the Bible, which is the Gospel of John. John, chapter 1. It is now months that I have occupied myself with this book and even portions of this book, and I just can't move on. It's really wonderful. Read with me from verse 14 to 17, please, to save time. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The sentence is important. Full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The single verse that I want to use tonight is verse 16. And of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. In my Bible in Afrikaans, the translation actually says grace upon grace. The idea of abundance that is conveyed like the waves of the sea. Grace upon grace. I would like, beloved, to talk to you tonight about one of the most serious dangers that face the modern church. And it is called, and, and it's an unsettling title, I'm not even easy myself with it, Cheap grace. 
I could have titled it Easy Grace. I could have said Mass Market Grace. I could have said Grace at a Discount. Grace, cheap grace. I'll tell you about the history of that title in a minute. Imagine for a moment with me that you want to make a living by selling sand in the Sahara Desert. Do you think you'd make it? I doubt it very much. Why? Because the commodity that you offer the marketplace is in plentiful supply. There's an economic principle that talks about excess supply. You would have excess supply of sand far exceeding the demand, which means that the price would plummet and the commodity in your hands would not command a price or a value in the marketplace. Selling ice to the Eskimos would probably land you in the same situation. Imagine you were in war-torn Germany in Second World War, 39 to 1945. And you walk down the street with a wheelbarrow full of Deutschmarks in notes and coins. And you couldn't even buy one loaf of bread with it. Why? Because the authorities thought by printing money, like a commodity, we will spend Germany out of trouble. And what happened? The amount of money, the quantity of money in circulation was so excessive that the commodity, the Deutschmark, the value in the marketplace completely disappeared. It became worthless. Cheap commodity. Imagine with me God being a farmer. And the Bible actually refers to that. I'm the true vine. My father is the husbandman, John 15. Somebody said, God's commodity as a farmer would be grace. Do you agree? God farms with grace. He plants grace. He cultivates grace. He reaps grace and he distributes grace. And God is such a good farmer that the Bible said, says, infinite grace. God produces or God possesses infinite grace. Inexhaustible supplies of grace. Our text says grace upon grace. Boundless grace. And the way that grace is presented in the marketplace, not grace itself becoming a worthless commodity because of the excess supply, but the way it's presented to the marketplace causes us to sit with the situation in the modern world with mega churches, some of them, not all of them, 
dispensing cheap grace. And that's the danger that I want to talk to you a little bit about this evening. Who coined the phrase, phrase cheap grace? The man's name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was he? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in Germany in 1906 and he died at the hands of the Nazis on the morning of 9th of April 1945. He was hanged, he was executed because of his resistance to Adolf Hitler's Nazi regime. But who was he? Bonhoeffer is regarded probably as the most acclaimed Protestant Lutheran theologian of our times. And initially, he passively resisted. And then he saw that it had no impact on the regime, and then he became actively involved in the resistance. And he was captured, and he was sent to Flossenburg death camp where he spent one full year on death row. And while in Flossenburg on death row, he wrote very, what later became very famous, letters from prison. And two of the most outstanding essays that he wrote as a heavyweight theologian was Cheap Grace and the Cost of Discipleship. These two actually go hand in hand. Now, he was remembered for his last words. At only 39 years of age, when he walked to the gallows, it is said that he said to the people around him, this is the end. But for me, the real beginning. A man who died for his conviction because of the fact that he was a man of God. As a result of that, he also probably became one of the most well-known modern martyrs for Christ in our day. Now, what was the context? Why did he write Cheap Grace? For that, we need to look at Germany during World War II. What was Germany like? Well, the Nazis almost annihilated all the Jews in Germany and in Poland. In the Holocaust, they killed approximately 6 million of God's people in the period 1939 to 1945. And remember, this was now the context that Bonhoeffer himself experienced. But why did he write it still? The next question will answer that. Where was the church in all of this? Where was Christianity for five years when all of this happened? Right? Christianity, the Catholics, were sort of like go to be blamed for the whole situation because they called 
the Jews, the Christ killers, that sparked this whole holocaust. Most of the Germans belonged to the Lutheran church, and the Lutheran church didn't move a finger. It was like the biblical story of the Good Samaritan, the Levite and the priest representing the church, looking the other way in the face of atrocities and a huge human tragedy, looking the other way. So the church was not involved. It was a case in those days, like many new churches today, subscription involvement. As long as I pay my dues, I'm involved. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is something different. So Bonhoeffer asked himself, now where was the church? Where were the Christians in this situation? And then he coined the phrase and he wrote the two letters, cheap grace and the other one on the cost of discipleship. The church was absent, invisible, uninvolved. In a sense, you can then say the church was complicit. It gave its tacit agreement to what happened, if you look the other way. So Bonhoeffer was devastated, and he then wrote the whole essay on cheap grace. Now, I just want us to view for five minutes a clip on YouTube that... uh, conveys the main statements, the main tenets of cheap grace as he formulated them. I just want to forewarn you, you must just watch fairly quickly. The frames follow in fairly quick succession. That is what he said about it, and all I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize something, and I'll just add a point of two, and that would be my message for tonight. Okay, but let's view uh, the five-minute clip from on the subject of cheap grace by Bonhoeffer.
Thank you. If that doesn't speak to one, then nothing else will speak to you. I think the main point that I would like to take away from that two points would be where he says that cheap grace justifies the sin without justifying the sinner. There's a worldliness in it. Uh, in fact, if I have to summarize it, I would say cheap grace is grace bestowed by man upon himself. It is a self-righteousness. Let's just look at, at two scriptures there. Ephesians 2, 8, please. We're almost through. It's not going to be a long one, this. Ephesians 2, 8. Okay. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace are ye saved, through faith, listen to this, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Both the faith as well as the grace remains a gift of God. It is so wonderful. Um, Matthew 6.33, we always quote it in a different context, but I think it's very applicable here. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Whose righteousness? His righteousness, not my own righteousness. And all the other things will be added unto you. Cheap grace produces followers with a form of godliness. 1 Timothy, a form of godliness, but who denies the power thereof. Cheap grace takes the mantra of the Reformation. Can you still remember what that was? To an unbiblical extreme. Salvation by grace alone, or through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. But it takes it to the extreme to say everything is for free and therefore it does not have, it does not command any value. A do-it-yourself substitute. I'm going to close with one more thought. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. And I want us to read the little story of the rich young regent in Luke 18, please. Luke 18, 18. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he was seeking salvation. And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said all these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. I just want to make a few quick observations here. This man is definitely seeking salvation. That's why he asks the question directly to Christ. 
Now, some of these mega churches, the mass market grace dispensers, would say, brother, close your eyes and say this sinner's prayer after me. Not so. They do it in mass. Jesus didn't do it. In fact, on three occasions did Jesus have the opportunity to employ the sinner's prayer. But cheap grace dilutes the value of the sinner's prayer. Nicodemus came to him in the night and he said, good master, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? Jesus did not say to him, close your eyes and say after me this prayer. He says, no, you have to be reborn. That's the grace that we're talking about. The costly grace is the rebirth through the blood of Jesus Christ that we must undergo. Uh, and the other one was Saul on his way to Damascus. In the end, Jesus just showed him how much he would still suffer for it. He didn't ask him to recite the sinner's prayer after him. Not again that there's fault with the sinner's prayer, but the way it is employed, the way it's presented, the grace that comes with it dilutes the value of the sinner's prayer, generally speaking. So, so he comes to Jesus, and the first thing he does is he actually... Uh, confesses. He says, good master. That actually means I acknowledge you. You are who you say you are. And I was always a bit uh, taken aback by the fact that Jesus almost interrupted him until I sensed that Jesus sensed this man's motives. Whenever somebody approaches the Lord, he sees him in two dimensions. He sees a potential candidate for salvation on the one hand, which he saw in this man, and a potential disciple, because they're not always the same. And I think Jesus discerned beforehand. This man, he, he, he can talk a lot. He's a very talented man. He's a rich man. Uh, he accumulated much wealth. He's successful. I could use him. He's in, in the kingdom, as a disciple, he's probably more learned and richer than all the other I have. I could do with him. But he sensed when this man approached him, here's one that in our parlance of tonight, maybe he was looking for cheap grace. And he discerned him and he cut him short. On confession as well, because of the dispensing of cheap grace, I think churches are filled nowadays, not with converted people, but with confessors. It's easy to confess. The Bible says even the demons confess and yet they tremble. All right? So I, I see a bit of this in here. Maybe I'm stretching Scripture a bit, but allow me that. I'll take a bit of preacher's license tonight as far as that's concerned. All right, so Christ cuts him short and then he says to him, if you really want to follow me, go and bankrupt yourself. Bankrupt yourself economically so that all these things that you pretend to control, all these things that you cling to, don't no longer cling to you. And then you come and follow me, and the first thing you do is you roll up your sleeves because this is a kingdom where we actually work. All right? So, so I feel that this is the story of discipleship. Follow me. Follow me. That is what Jesus wants us to do. So, what then is costly grace? 
If all of this is cheap grace, I wanted to make another point, but I'll leave it for another occasion. I'm just going to drop it in your midst. I wanted to say, cheap grace is fertile ground for a spirit of escapism. In line with the way the Greek view of salvation, you know what the Greek view of salvation is? There are two prisons that you have to overcome in life in order to obtain salvation. The one prison is the body. It imprisons your soul. So at death, the soul escapes the body, the prison of the body. The other is, the, so the body is a bad thing as well. <laughs> the other thing is, the other prison is earth, the valley of tears from which we must escape. So you escape also upon death, but then you transfer to the, the other side, the afterlife. So all the emphasis is on escaping my body, escaping this valley of tears, and then everything is okay. I don't need to do anything here. I also want to escape the present in all its entirety, the present conditions, present circumstances, the present context. I now already just live in the afterlife. I think it's the Beatles, was it the Dung Beatles, that actually <laughs> invented the song, Dream, Dream, Dream. Our older ones would know that song. All I have to do is dreaming. That is the Greek philosophy of religion. We must just dream. There's no work to do. Christ taught the disciples differently and the Jews differently. There was no time for escape. If you look at the ascension picture, the angels asked these people, they probably were, uh, they, they couldn't all have been Greeks, otherwise they would still have been standing there tonight, 2,000 years later, waiting upon the return. While the message is for them, don't stand and yearn, don't look at the heavens in order to escape to follow Jesus there, follow him right back into the world because he's not really away. He's more present now than he was before that. Right, that's the message to them. But Jesus taught it very, very, uh, in, in a very fitting way, in an uh, impressive way when he said to them, Jews, if you pray, you say, Father which art in heaven, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. Is that only when the Lord returns? No. It's a prayer that you and I can repeat today. Thy kingdom come today. The year and now part of the kingdom of Christ. How must it come? Through you and me. It is actually a prayer that says, Lord, help me every day of my life to bring heaven and earth closer together. Because that's why you put me here. Let me share more and more of heaven that you gave into me today in this world and expand your kingdom, save the lost, heal the sick, uh, release the ones uh, in prison bars of the devil and the demons. So it's a work. Thy will be done. Done is an action verb. It's go to work. 
Don't stand here. Go back to Jerusalem because there's some work to do. Roll up the sleeves. What is, what is costly grace then? Costly grace, it was said, is costly because a man needs to lose his life. Luke 9.24, you can read it in your own time. A man needs to lose his life, but it's at the same time grace because in return he gets eternal life. He gets the real life in return. It is costly because it cost God his son, his only beloved son. But it's grace on the other side because the son willingly sacrificed his life. It is costly because, listen carefully, and I think Brother Jeff will really like this, because there's an inconvenience in discipleship. Discipleship of Jesus can be hugely inconvenient. The cost of inconvenience of discipleship. But it is grace because that disciple is a co-worker, shoulder to shoulder with Jesus Christ himself. Isn't that a privilege? That's grace. That's grace. Uh, John 15, 8. John 15, 8. And I think I'll close with that. Just, let's just read that. Wonderful. John 15, 8 says, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. So shall ye be my disciples. And then back to Luke 18, I just want to close with verse 28 to 30. Luke 28, uh, uh, sorry, Luke 18 again, verse 28. <clears throat> we read the story of the rich young ruler. Just a little bit, just the next page in my Bible says, verse 28, then Peter said, lo, we have left all and followed thee. This is still in the aftermath of the young regent uh, interaction. And he said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake. Listen to this. Who shall, this is the grace part, the wonderful grace part, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. A disciple will be adequately rewarded by the Lord. Not only, yes, by all means, in the life hereafter, when we stand before the judgment throne of Christ. But this scripture says, in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. Costly grace is grace with discipleship. May God grant us that from tonight we realize there's no escaping our responsibility now and here. And if we really want to be called the disciple of Jesus Christ in terms of John 15, 8, we must start bearing fruit. Thank you. God bless you. Uh, I, I'm not sure what the rest of the procedure is. Thank you, brother. God bless you. Thank you.